an odd thing to honor those who died in defense of our country, in defense of us, in wars far away. The imagination plays a trick. We see these soldiers in our mind as old and wise. We see them as something like the founding fathers, grave and gray-haired. But most of them were boys when they died, and they gave up two lives, the one they were living and the one they would have lived. When they died, they gave up their chance to be husbands and fathers and grandfathers. They gave up their chance to be revered old men. They gave up everything for our country, for us. And all we can do is remember. There's always someone who is remembering for us. No matter what time of year it is or what time of day, there are always people who come to this cemetery, leave a flag or a flower or a little rock on a headstone. And they stop, bow their heads, and communicate what they wished to communicate. They say, hello, Johnny, or hello, Bob. We still think of you. You're still with us. We never got over you. And we pray for you still, and we'll see you again. We'll all meet again. Global Recon Podcast, episode 40. Um, we released our first episode late January, and uh, you know now we're at our 40th. Uh, it's been fun. It's been interesting. Uh, I've had the opportunity to meet a lot of interesting people, and, and, and I really enjoyed doing this. Uh, so for this episode, I have a veteran of the uh, PSYOP, Psychological Operations uh, Unit, the U.S. Army Unit. And um, we talk Philippines. He has a company called Combat Flags, and they do really great work with creating these uh, American flags out of uniforms worn by servicemen and women. And it's really awesome. And he, he has a, a bunch of other uh, products that he offers and he donates a, a large percentage of what he makes to an organization that does really great work with uh, helping soldiers, uh, preventing them from getting to that low point or really helping out when they're in that low point. So it, it, it's all around a great company. Um, he's a great guy. And, you know, we talked the Philippines, which isn't talked about too much. Um, but it's important to understand some of what happens there as it fits into the larger picture of this uh, global war on terror. So uh, here's my interview with Dan from Combat Flags. Hey, what's up, everybody? I am on with Dan from Combat Flags. Uh, Dan is a U.S. Army veteran. And if if you've seen anything from Combat Flags on social media, uh, the other day I posted a uh, a picture up and I, I had one of his flags in the picture. Uh, they basically use uh, uniforms, uh, soldiers, the uniforms of soldiers who have served to make these flags, and it's pretty awesome. Um, 
And and we'll get more into that a little later on. Uh, so Dan, how's it going, brother? Good, John. How are you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. Um, so Dan, let's talk a little bit about uh, your background in the military and and uh, a little bit about your career in the army. Sure, man. Uh, before I get started, I just wanted to say thanks for having me on. I've been this is going to sound corny, a long time listener, and I'm I'm pumped to be here. No, no problem, brother. Thank you for coming on, man. Sure. Yeah. So my, my background starts, uh, I'm going to say way back in 2003, I actually joined the army in between my junior and senior years of high school. Um, September 11th had just gone down. I knew that I needed to do something for the country, but I wasn't quite ready to go to college and do the ROTC thing. I wasn't really that mature yet for college. So I did a lot of research. I mean, the military runs in my family, so I decided to pull the trigger and I ended up enlisting in the Army. So I, uh, I ended up enlisting with an MOS of 37 Foxtrot, which is Psychological Operations. And to be completely honest with you, the only reason I chose that MOS at the time is because it gar- guaranteed me a slot in airborne school. And that was, nice. that was, that's what I wanted, and that's what I got. And so I ended up scoring high enough on my ASVAB that I had the pick of the litter for, for, for jobs and MOSs. I got lucky enough that that one was open at the time. So uh joined the Army, graduated high school, went to basic training at Fort Jackson, had my AIT at Fort Bragg, where that was like my first real introduction to the big Army, but also to special operations and special forces. Um, I then went off to airborne school at Benning, like everyone else in the military, and then I went back to Fort Bragg for nine months of language school, where I, I learned Tagalog, so I, I was almost completely fluent in Tagalog, which is Filipino. Nice. So after, so after uh, language school, I went off to my, my unit, which was in 4th Psychological Operations Group, 5th Psyop Battalion. And from there, I deployed a couple of times in support of operation and during Philippines, which is a lesser-known side of OEF that actually ran in parallel with OEF Afghanistan for the better part of the last 13 to 14 years. So OEF Philippines... Was that underway before Afghanistan or after Afghanistan? Um, it kicked off in 2002, so it would have been just shortly after the Iraq and Afghanistan's Afghanistan campaigns kicked off, I think. Okay, okay. Yeah. But, like, it, it's so, yeah. kind of little known, like you said, like, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, terrorist groups that operate in the Philippines and things like that, and... Um, and so all of your trips were to the Philippines, like all of your overseas trips? Yeah, both deployments were to, to the Philippines. That was my AO. Um, so when you, when you enlist in the Army to a job that requires you to learn a language, you take what's called the, the D-Lab, the Defense Language Aptitude Battery. And from there, you get a score. And that score basically funnels you into languages. So, I mean, there were guys in my class, in my, my bigger class, that were in Korean, Russian, Farsi, Arabic. Uh, Spanish, there were a couple others in there. So based off of your language, that is, that's your AO in the military for the most part. So I was, an, I was an Asian language, so my battalion, 5th Battalion, was dedicated to PACOM. Like that is where we operated. So both of my deployments were only to the Philippines. You can move around, but I was, I was only in for six years. So I, I kind of did my time and didn't really get too much transition or movement out of it. Okay, and um, so so the psyops, 
you know, it's it's kind of an interesting uh, job. It's a little different and unique. Uh, can you explain a little bit about what that was like for you? Yeah, uh, PSYOP is an awesome MLS. I would not have picked anything else. I got to do some cool stuff. I got to see meet some cool guys and go through some pretty cool training. And really all of that is because PSYOP, Psychological Operations, falls under USASOC. So we are considered part of the, the SOF community and the SOF family. Um, so for the, the, the average person out there who is not familiar with PSYOP, you can kind of think of it in its most basic form as the, the U.S. military trying to convey selected information to pre-targeted audiences. And what we are trying to do with this information is we're trying to influence these audiences. So when I say audience, I mean a community, um, a certain sect of people, really just any kind of audience. If you're a Carolina Panthers fan, you could be an audience. If you're a Yankees fan, you're, you could be another target audience. But what we're trying to do is influence their emotions, their motives, and really the end state is we want to enforce some sort of change in the behavior of a government, an organization, or a group. Um, and so in all of that, you can break up, much like you can in the rest of the military, you can break up PSYOP into three bigger buckets or three smaller buckets. They're strategic, operational, and tactical. Um, strategic and operational, the, the terms are oftentimes interchanged, but they, they have two very separate meanings, but strategic is off, often used in place of operational. So strategic or operational PSYOP um, can be thought of as like the bigger planning element of a, a PSYOP company or a PSYOP mission. So that's going to be the team or the group of guys out at a camp somewhere really planning. They're doing a lot of the target audience analysis, the target audience research. They're planning out the missions. Um, they're coordinating and liaison, liaising with the the host nation or the host unit entities. And then the tactical, which is really more of what I did in the Philippines, is you're going out, those are basically the boots on the ground. You're going out and you're implementing whatever the strategy and the plan is. You're working within the communities, you're getting your face out in the crowd, and you're actually talking to the folks. Um, so in my case, I was attached to, and we can get into this a little bit later, I was attached to two ODAs, two special forces teams on both deployments. And we were going out, boots on the ground, and these far-flung barangays is, is the Filipino term for basically a very, very small town. Think of, in the U.S., like a neighborhood as a barangay, where there's just a, a small group of houses, and those are your neighbors. So we were going out to these areas, and we were providing medical assistance and dental assistance. But in the background, we were also learning information about these people. We were learning what, really what makes them tick so that we would better be able to provide them with what they need. So in turn, they could give us what we need, which is information and access. Right. So it, this all falls under, under like the, um, you know, counterinsurgency, counterterrorism yep. type of operations. Exactly. And <laughs> um, so I like to think of, of PSYOP and the, the real world and the civilian world as public relations it translates pretty easily. So a lot of what we were doing on the ground is we were providing reading materials. We were providing uh, yo-yos and, and a generic form of Crocs to help get this, this information, whatever the information of the time was, out to these people so that they would then trust the, 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 host, the Filipino army, the AFP, and be more willing to work with them in the future. All 
under the auspice of counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, and finding the bad guys and getting the bad guys out of the country. Now, now similar to like, because, you know, like during the height of the Iraq war, um, and, and now even in Syria now and, and Iraq, there were, it wasn't just like a lot of people just like, um, especially people who were highly critical of the war there or, or the continued war effort. Yeah. Um, you know, people, I would hear people say things or, or see it online or, you know, the, you know, we're out there fighting farmers and, and things like that. But that was really very far from the truth. And, and a part of the truth was um, what removing Saddam from his position of power did was it, it uh, the security, he had like very strict and stringent security throughout the country. And even though he was considered a bad guy, he kept uh, this kind of, you know, this international, transnational terrorism all these organizations, he kept them out of Iraq. So what ended up happening was now in Iraq, you know, you're, they're fighting guys from Chechnya, they're fighting guys from Africa, from or from all over the Middle East. And so in the Philippines, what was it? You know, just Filipino terrorism, or was it international organizations operating in the Philippines? Yeah, let's. Um, before I answer that straight on, I'm going to step it back a little bit. And just give a, a real quick recap and a very brief history lesson on the Philippines, because that sure. really you need to understand what's going on before we can talk about the bigger macro issues at play. So the, the Philippines falls within Southeast Asia, and it's an archipelago nation of more than 7,000 islands. So there is a, a lot of land and a very little amount of space. Um, and generally, actually not generally, specifically the Philippines is birth broken up into three separate archipelagos. There's uh, Luzon, which is the northernmost, Visayas, which would be the middle chunk, and then Mindanao, which is the southernmost portion of the Philippines. And the, the terrorist activity predominantly takes place on Mindanao. And that happens really for a couple of reasons. Um, so the, the difficulties that arise within the southern Philippines really come into play with, it's, it's a very diverse society. There's a host of different familial, familial, tribal, and ethnic rule. And it's a, it's a breeding ground for nepotism. And it's, it's plain as day when you're on the ground and you see it across the board. So back in, I think it's the, the mid to late 70s, uh, this group called the Moro, the Moro National Liberation Front, the MNLF, started to take hold and open up these training camps. Um, and they were they were insurgents. They were training insurgencies. Um, the the MNLF eventually had kind of an internal coup, and they split off into a, a separate group called the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. Um, they've been in the news periodically. Often you'll hear them referred to as the MILF or the MILF. So these camps really paved the way for what I was working with and what guys who preceded me were working with. Um. Basically, I mean, throughout the years, there have been thousands of jihadists who were who were trained here, and they were going everywhere. They were going to Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, pretty much you name it. I, I like to refer to the Philippines as like the minor leagues of terrorism. That's where uh, the terrorists go. They get some of their, their more in-depth training, and they, they practice. And when, when they're ready for the big leagues, they get called up, and they go out to the Middle East, and they, they do their thing out there. 
so these these training camps in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s were pumping out guys left and right. Um, some of the more notable folks who who came through the Philippines, which I'm surprised is not more mainstream knowledge. Um, so Osama bin Laden's uncle uh, came through. I'm sorry, not his uncle. His brother-in-law came through in the, the late 80s. And then another guy named Ramzi Youssef, who uh, most of us probably know as one of the, the primary architects of the, the World Trade Center bombings in 93, also did a brief stint in the Philippines. And then a more contemporary guy named Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, which I guarantee everyone knows. Yeah, um, yeah he's one of the, uh, the big guys from the, the September 11th attacks. He, he did some training in the Philippines and actually was a former secretary of one of the, the terrorist groups in the Philippines called the Abu Sayyaf Group, or ASG. Yeah. So really, while, while all these guys were coming through and training and, and learning their tradecraft, um, some of them were leaving and some of them were staying. A couple of the guys who decided to stay ended up forming their own terrorist groups of their own selves, uh, the two namely being Jamia Islamia, or J.I., and then, like I just said, the Abu Sayyaf group or ASG. So they, they gained ground pretty quick, and they have been wreaking havoc on, on the southern part of the Philippines through bombings and, and kidnappings, specifically KFRs, which are kidnapped for ransoms. It's, it's how they make their money. It's how they stay in business. Um, so pretty much that's where that takes us up to present day, 2002, where the, the government of the Philippines and the U.S. government formed a partnership focused on combating uh, Jamia Islamia and ASG as they were both generally considered at the time to be the, the greatest combined terror threat to both nations. Right. And so PSYOPs, uh, so basically like all the guys from PSYOPs will be sent out like or, or, or shotgunned out to different units where their capability is needed or... or um. Yeah, so the, the force, the American force in the Philippines is pretty small. I've seen it estimated anywhere from about 200 folks to about five or 600 at its peak. So the, the PSYOP presence was actually really small. I can tell you I was one of two guys, two PSYOP guys operating with these, the SF teams on the, the biggest chunk of Mindanao. So we were, we were doing a lot of work a lot of the time. And most of the, the PSYOP assets were reserved for that strategic mission that I, I mentioned earlier when I was given the, the quick run through. So they were handling most of the, the planning and the coordination. And then there was me and, and one other guy who was actually, we were actually on the ground doing the face-to-face, -face, trying to build relations, build rapport, and help the, the armed forces of the Philippines become more, to, to increase their reputation, to be more trustworthy to the people. Right. So in the Philippines, um, so they have a large Islamic population, right? Yeah. So the majority of the country would be Catholic or Christian, but the that southern island of Mindanao is predominantly Islamic. And there was that the faction of the MILF who actually, for a very long time, and the MNLF wanted to break Mindanao off into its own sovereign Islamic state. They wanted to completely remove it from the government of the Philippines and control the island as their own people. Right. Yeah. So a lot of, so since, uh, so since these training camps were, you know, erected, 
were, were they fighting against the government, you know, since the 70s and 80s, or were they just, like, using that as a training ground? Uh, for for a pretty good portion of time, they were just using it as training. It was considered to be a safe haven. The government wouldn't really venture too far down into these far-flung areas. The jungle's very thick. It takes a, a pretty decent amount of resources and energy to get to get where these guys were. Um, so after... I'm not really sure of the period of time, but after a while, they started fighting against the, the government, against the, the military. There were gunfights, bombings, you name it going on, on a pretty fairly consistent basis. And, and were they only striking in that southern island, or were they striking all across the Philippines? Um, the, the bulk of the, the forceful attacks were on the southern island of Mindanao. Um, the, the KFRs, the Kidnapped for Ransoms, were happening sporadically on uh, Visayas, which would be that middle chunk. And so Visayas is, they're purported to have some of the world's most beautiful beaches. It's where people go to vacation. So it's where the, the wealthy go. And that's where these, these terrorist groups, they see dollar signs. So they go to kidnap some, some foreigners. They get a nice payday and they give them back. Right. So if I'm vacationing in the Philippines, I don't want to go there, basically. Um, <laughs> you, you, it's, you could, <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. I wouldn't go there, Yeah. Okay. All right. That's... <laughs> but I know it's still a pretty popular spot. Right. Right. So, so after the government of the Philippines decided to, you know, form this partnership with the United States, um, then they went on the offensive and, um, is there any like measurable progress there or, or how is that working? Yeah, so it's important to note that the the, U, the United States uh, participation over there was in a non-combatant role. So we were embedding with with Marine units, with Army units, to the, the Philippine Army and Marine units, and we were. It's, it's the traditional by with and through method where we we train them, we advise them, we provide intelligence, we provide logistical support, but they go out and they actually conduct the operations. Right. So um, they were they were pushing farther and farther into some of these far flung areas, and there's been, I mean, there's been back and forth. There's been gains and losses over the past since since I got back in two thousand and eight. So over the past what eight years now, where the Philippine, the, the formal Philippine government, the AFP, will push farther in and they'll gain some ground. They'll get comfortable, and then they'll be put on the the defensive and push back out of these these marshy jungle areas. So our primary role was to to help get them a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper by helping to build the trust of the civilian population. Because without having a good reputation and a good trust between the, the people and the government, the people are never going to confide in the soldiers and the Marines that they see patrolling around their area. And they rely heavily on they being the, the Philippine government rely heavily on on human intel. They need to know where the bad guys are, where their their weapon caches are, where they're getting their money, where they're getting their food, and exactly how they're manipulating these these people who are impoverished most of the time and oftentimes being kicked out of their homes or out of their villages and their their little bits of land, so that these groups can come in and state claim. Right, so it's kind of something that we've seen before. Um, you know, if you want to go back as far as Vietnam, uh, 
Yeah. Uh, you know, similar strategy, similar part of the world. Um, so it, it's pretty interesting stuff. And so there are a large number of foreigners who fight in the Philippines. Like, um, like Africans, Czechians, maybe, or, you know, Arabs uh, or whatever. You know, I, I'm honestly not sure enough on that to give you a solid answer and feel good with it. Okay, sure. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting because, like, a lot of people, and, and specifically more, you know, we'll, we'll get back to, like, kind of the critics of this, you know, global pursuit of countering terrorism. And people don't really understand, like, it's not just... Uh, it's not like one location, you know, like it's, you know, like the Russians have been fighting against, you know, Chechen terrorism for years now. Yep. And, and these, these Chechen groups, they, you know, they're, they're all over. They've, they've captured guys in Afghanistan and Africa and mm-hmm. Iraq. I mean, you name it. So what, what, one, what, you know, one point I would like the listeners to uh, soak up is that, you know, it's it's called the global war on terror because it's literally a transnational fight against uh, an ideology. And I mean, it, it could be different groups. You know, it's not the same exact group, but they all have a similar ideology and they all have a similar goal or end state. You know. Yep. I mean, the mind share is what keeps these these groups going. They they may not necessarily agree with one another, but they know that in order for their their cause to succeed, they need to share information and they need to be somehow connected. So the global war on terror is exactly that. Just right. like you said, John, it is truly all encompassing and it's a giant web that can be wrapped all the way around the world. And unfortunately, it's not something that will ever really be defeated because you can't, you can't kill off an ideology, right? So it's really just going to eventually have to become like a quarantine method where we can we can hone in on one specific area and see what we can do to, to help craft um, messages and messaging to the, the, the people, the average people, not the bad guys, but the average people to, to fight that ideology. So we're gonna have to, it's going to have to be a, a grassroots effort and not something that we can hit from the bottom down. But it's, I'm sorry, not the top down, but it's going to have to be a bottom-up approach. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean... Um forget exactly what it was that I was reading. I was reading, I was reading about uh, Vietnam and basically what, what the, what they were saying was that, uh, Ho, Ho Chi Minh, the, mm-hmm. uh, who he was the president at the time of Vietnam. Uh, he was, was pretty clever and they had like this method of, uh, you know, offering money to the locals um, or, or offering whatever it was and, and kind of moving their people into these small villages and small areas. And, you know, when someone would resist, you know, they will just disappear in the night, that kind of thing. And um, and they had this entire methodology of uh, either convincing people to join their cause or, or doing a little bit of both with forcing them and convincing them, you know. And the CIA at the time they were really taking notes on uh, on how it was being done. And then they they went through a large effort of, of trying to counter that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, since World War II, really, I mean, well, since the Korean War, th- there hasn't been like a, 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 a conventional, you know, 
this side versus that side type of war. It's it's been right. you know what I mean this this insurgency style thing that's going on. So it's it's a little more difficult to deal with. Oh yeah, completely. You it's impossible to fight a war when you can't identify who the enemy is. Right. And you could actually take some of the uh, the mind games like you just mentioned with Ho Chi Minh all the way back to World War Two. And if you look at what Hitler did with Germany, that is like a prime example of psychological operations gone bad oh yeah so there was there, there was actually there is still an, an act in place within the united states in the united states called the gillette act gillette act or the gillette amendment that makes it illegal to practice psychological operations on on u.s soil you can train but you cannot actually implement anything that you you learn on your tactics or procedures on american citizens oh wow yeah oh wow that's interesting yeah, well, actually, Hitler is probably the perfect example. Yeah, he, uh, that was manipulation at, unfortunately, its finest. Yeah, I mean, he, he was a, a bad dude, you know, but he, he, uh, he was able to get his people on the same page. Um, you know, he created a common enemy with uh, the Jews, and then, you know, through through like wheeling and dealing, they, they built up their military and they just, you know, went, set out on a campaign to take over the world. But, uh, you know, as, as bad as he was, he was a pretty genius, uh, guy, you know? <laughs> yeah. It almost feels wrong to say that, but, but yeah, he, no, uh... I, I mean, like not, <laughs> not, not, you know, he did terrible things and, and, you know, the, the, the world fought back, but he, know, uh... it, it's no small task to, to get to the point where you almost take over the world, you know what I mean? He knew and understood how to get exactly what he wanted. Right. Yep. Right. And so now, uh, you know, fast forward to 2016 <laughs> in the Philippines, uh, you know, it's been in the papers and, and uh, all the news outlets. They have like a pretty serious uh, war on drugs going on, like a literal war on drugs. Like, like they're shooting uh, drug dealers, drug users, um, you know, and, and it's pretty, pretty hairy. I'm not too sure on the specifics of it, but just from what I've, I've kind of skimmed through articles, it looks pretty serious. Yeah, they, um, they've been fighting that war on a smaller scale since, since I was there. Um, the drug problem, uh, specifically what they call Shabu, has been around for a while. And it's been something that's actually been fought by the military. So they were using some forces to go fight terrorism and do the counterinsurgency thing. And then there were other guys partnering with the Philippine national police to, to help, um, find and take illegal substances from, from citizens. And it got to the point at, at during one of my deployments where, um, they actually had what they called a Shabu burn where they took all these drugs that they had confiscated and they, tossed him into a giant pile and had basically a huge bonfire around it. And it was one to get rid of the drugs because they couldn't store that couldn't store it. They didn't have the room, but it was also um, to make a spectacle out of the drugs to show people that if you guys have these things and we catch you, this is what's going to happen. And you're also going to be punished. But the, uh, the war on drugs over there as of late, as, as you mentioned, has taken a very different turn and the new president is unrelenting in his passion and his mission to clean up the country. 
So is it like like what kind of drugs are we talking like? Are we talking like heroin, like opium? Uh, there's a, a little bit of everything. And anything that you can get here, you can get there. But I, I would say that it's not the quality is not on par with where it is here. So it's probably been cut or cleaned with some very harmful substances that contain even more harmful chemicals. Uh, I see. I see. Yeah. And actually, um, I remember, remember one city specifically, I won't say the name of it, but the, the mayor of this town was basically doing what the, the president of the Philippines is doing now, where he would not tolerate any kind of tomfoolery or shenanigans. He was to the point where people weren't even allowed to shoot fireworks off within the city because it could have been mistaken for uh, uh, gunfire or bombing. Wow. And he was very strict in his punishments. Yeah, that 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 the new president, he's not playing games. And um, I, I was reading the paper, the I think it was the New York Times the other day, and I, like I think he had like included like up to three hundred government officials and police chiefs in like his um, I don't know his targeting cell. I don't I don't know what you would call it, but okay. Um, and then there was like a big backlash from officials about it, um, you know, because people were saying things like. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no evidence to, to you know what I mean, to uh, back up uh, your your claims or whatever. So right. it seems like a pretty messy situation, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not too ingrained in the specifics, but from what I have seen, it's what I've seen in person and what I've read. It's definitely a problem that needs to be cleaned up. But if he's calling out officials, government officials or law enforcement officials without having any proof that could end up backfiring on him. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's talk, uh, let's talk about your company. So how long have you had, uh, combat flags? Yeah. So actually combat flags has been operating since April 1st of this year and it was still pretty new, but I have actually had some pretty good success with with the company and I guess I'm going to back up a little bit because I I feel like I need to set the foundation for what it is or what it what it was before I can get to what it is so when I got out of the, the army in 2009 I really didn't want anything to do with the military I got out all the way I didn't want to talk about it I didn't want to think about it I didn't want to see it I boxed everything up and it went into the attic and I didn't look at it again for years but um, like like most veterans that I've talked to, I had a, a difficult time kind of reintegrate reintegrating back with like the civilian population. I mean, I went from being how old was I at the time? A twenty three year old E five, two deployments under my belt, to a college student surrounded by eighteen and nineteen year olds within two months two months of one another. So I was having a, a tough time integrating, and I, I later found out it's because I was missing that connection to my military brother and sisters, to, my, to other veterans. So about that time, I started to look for a way that I could give back to the veteran community, but I wanted to do it in my own way. You know, like I didn't just want to donate money to the Wounded Warrior Project. I didn't want to go volunteer for an hour or two a month and not really make a huge impact. I, w- I was really searching for something that was special and unique, and also something that would leave a mark for the average civilian to understand what the, the true sacrifice is that our, our service men and women make on a daily basis. So I graduated college, got a job, got another job, 
and I was on a conference call one day, and I just happened to look up at the corner of my desk, and I had a one of those four by six inch yard flags, like you get, like they pass out on the Fourth of July, hang from the corner of my desk. And I don't know why I looked up at that specific point in time, but I did, and it hit me like a bolt of lightning. The idea for combat flags just literally popped right into my mind. So I went home, and I tore into that box of uniforms that I hadn't looked at since I had, since I ETS since I left the military, and I started prototyping. And what I came up with was a four by six inch American flag. But the kicker is that the the front of the flags are made out of donated uh, fatigues. So they're, they're duty worn, they're used and abused, they're torn, they're stained. Um, they haven't smelled yet, so I'm very <laughs> thankful that everyone's washed them. But the, the fabric on the front of the flag has oftentimes seen combat or it's at least seen duty of some sort. In the back of the flag, I stitch on um, a, a very short bio of who donated the uniform. So you get a sense of who actually wore that uniform and what their experience was like and what their service to the, to the country was like. And then underneath that bio, I, uh, I close it out with a quote that I liked from Major Rusty Bradley. And the quote is, it's meaningful to me because I served in the military, but I think it's really good for the average, the average Joe, the average person, because it gives a sense of what that sacrifice is like. So the quote reads, regardless of your race, culture, or religion, you want to die standing, fighting like a warrior, an American, so others won't have to. For those looking for a definition, this is the price of freedom. So I make these flags, and I, I stamp the front, the material, with a hand-carved uh, flag stamp. You don't get the stars, but you get this really cool, kind of aged and fatigued-looking black pattern that is clearly an American flag. Yeah, it's awesome. And from there, um, I, I sell them on my, my website, which is combatflags.com. And they start at 12 bucks, so they're, they're pretty easy for anyone to, to purchase. But the kicker here is that I donate half of literally every sale goes to StopSoldierSuicide.org, which is a company dedicated to, uh, to stopping soldier suicide. And the cool thing about them is they take a dual approach. They don't come in just when that moment or that thought comes into the person's mind or the, the family is worried. They're there beginning, so there's the the prevention and the postvention, you could say, to where they come in if there's if the veteran is having a difficult time with money or finding a job or reacclimating or with PTSD, TBI, any kind of injury, whatever, they get in and they they help allocate resources and find the best support for that person. And that that's actually why I I chose them after I'd researched a lot of different groups is because they had the most comprehensive um, approach. To helping these these guys and girls out. Yeah, that, that's awesome, man. Um, I've heard of Stop Soldier Suicide. I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of organizations out there, but them specifically, yeah. I've heard good things about. And um, when when I received my flag from you in the mail, uh, I remember, you know, I, I read the back about where the uniform was from, and then I was surprised to see the quote uh, from Major Bradley. Um, you know, cause I've, I've major Rusty Bradley was on the podcast twice. Um, yeah. And for those who don't know, he's a retired special forces major. Um, we you know with a lot of experience and he, he wrote a very good book, uh, called lines of Kandahar. And, um, the quote it, actually came from that book. From the book. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so, you know, it was interesting to see that 
and um you know it's 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 great what you're doing man like i i think the whole concept is cool the the flags are are well made and um you know like you said it helps give people a sense of uh you know part of what the sacrifice is is about you know yeah and that was i mean it's cool for like for me and my family because obviously the first flags that i made were out of my own gear i didn't want to waste anybody else's stuff so it's cool for me and my family to have something that that i wore overseas and i wore during my time but the feedback I've gotten from, from civilians has really been astounding. Like a lot of people really don't have any connection to the military. So when they get these flags in the mail and they can, they can touch them, they can feel the material, they can, they can see them up close and personal, the feedback I've gotten has just been that it's been an emotional experience for them. People have told me they've, they've cried when they've opened their packages up. Um, they've given them as gifts and the, the recipient has cried. And it's, it feels so good knowing that I'm leaving that kind of impact on people who may not otherwise have had any kind of connection or really reason to connect with the military outside of what they see on the news or read in the papers. And then um, on the flip side of that, for the veterans in the community, I've been shocked, completely shocked at how they've rallied around me with combat flags. Like I thought it was kind of cool at first. Obviously, I had the idea. <laughs> but um yeah i'm i'm part of this this uh chat group on instagram that has a couple other veteran uh companies and just like regular veterans who are just doing their thing out there and, and one of the guys his name is bobby he owns a company called 17 sierra gear he got one of the very first flags and he immediately sent me a text and he was like oh my god this is this is one of the coolest things i've seen in person and it's continued just like that. Like the sense of community around combat flags from veterans is huge. I've been getting texts and DMs from guys who want to link up in and around the Fort Bragg area. And like we're trying to schedule meetups so a group of us can get together. And that's really been kind of the coolest thing because I started this because I was having a tough time like getting back in with the veteran community and with the military community. So it's cool to have to see how it's drawing people in from different services, different branches, different eras of the military and, and connecting everyone to be part of a bigger conversation in a, in a, a bigger community. Yeah. It's interesting. Like the, the, um, you know, in some cases, the second or, or third effects of what, whatever it is you may be doing, uh, because, you know, with the power of social media, of the internet, um, you know, this, this new, connectivity that we have like everyone's connected you know um yep. it, it it has a very positive effect uh, you know for for a, a bunch of different things and and i think it's it's great to uh to see that you're having some success and you know and like the flags are awesome um and what so you, you don't just have the flags you also have other merchandise available yeah so i've I've kind of launched a few other products, uh, namely the the combat ribbon, which is um, think of like the yellow service ribbon that you see strapped on the back of cars or trees. That's made out of donated uh, fatigues, and they measure about five and a half inches tall by maybe two and a half inches at their widest, and and they're also stamped with a small American flag. And then most recently, I just came out with uh, what I've call, what I'm calling the combat cuff which is reminiscent of the, the aluminum bracelets that we all wear to, to memorialize guys who have lost their lives. So those actually come in two patterns. 
they're not made out of donated material, but I still donate half of every sale back to Stop Soldier Suicide. Um, so you can get those in either Marpat or Multicam, and those can be personalized with whatever text or copy you want on it. Or I'm selling a just kind of generic Till Valhalla combat cuffs, which um, Till Valhalla, Valhalla in Norse mythology and Viking mythology is where the warriors go when they die. Yeah. So it's um it's it's a meaningful phrase that I I particularly enjoy. So that's the one that I wear. I have my aluminum like customized memorial bracelet, and then right underneath it, I wear it till till Valhalla cuff. And then I also um, I have T-shirts available if you feel like repping a Combat Flags T-shirt. They're very soft, so <laughs> they're very comfortable. And what you you just had those T-shirts put up, or you've had them for a while now? Um, so like everything else with Combat Flags, I actually screen print those myself. Oh, right, I don't, right, right. Yeah, yeah. So I do them. Um, I was doing them in batches where I would I would buy like ten or twelve different shirts and then print them when they when they got in. But I've been doing them just made to order now. So I've got a, a little bit of a surplus on hand at the moment that I'm working through. But as that dwindles, I'll continue to offer those at a full time basis. Right, because you you um you you have a full time job as well as running combat flags. Oh yeah, I work uh I work for a, a very good company. I, I manage public relations for them, and they're completely behind combat flags. They they've been with me since the beginning. It's kind of become our our unofficial uh, charity or not not charity our our unofficial cause to support. But I uh, I start combat flags when I wake up at about. 5.30 in the morning, do that for a while, get ready to go to work, come home, work out, and then go right back to combat flags for a couple hours. So it's a, it's a full-time gig in and of itself. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel you, man. I, you know, I'm, I'm doing the same thing. Uh, so I, I feel you on that. Um, so and where can people go if they want to get some T-shirts, some flags, or some uh, ribbons and things like that? Yeah, so my website is um, www.combatflags.com, and you can check me out on Instagram. Um, I'm at combat underscore flags, and then Facebook, you can just search combat flags, and I'll pop up there pretty quick. Hey, so I have a question. I, I, I think I meant to ask you this um, off the air. Yeah. How do you get the uniforms? So when, when I first started, I was I was – sourcing my friends and my family who were either in or had been in at one point. And that got me started. That was my first two or three sets. Um, I then turned to Instagram and I would put up call for uniforms. It would just be a photo of different camouflages put up and ask people to shoot me a DM if they were interested. So they, they would do that. And since I've launched my website, people have been finding me that way. Um, so if you are interested in sending any gear in, uh, two things to know. One, you can find more information at combatflags.com. It's got my P.O. box address and the whole nine. And then anyone who does donate, I make two flags out of their own gear for them at no cost and send it back. So the, awesome. deal, is, the deal is with that is you get one flag to keep and one flag to give to somebody. That's awesome. So uh, for people who are interested in sending in their uniforms, uh, they can just go to your website? Yeah, go to my website and at the header you'll see a donate gear button or link, you'll click that, and then it will link you over to some more information, but you'll see in bold, you'll see my address, and then there's also some information that I, I like to include on the back of each flag, so it's pretty basic stuff, I'm not trying to 
like put anyone's life in danger here. It's like your first name, your last initial, what service you were in, how long you were in, what deployments you had, anything that you found meaningful, really just information that I need to help write that bio on the back of the flag to personalize it for you and then personalize it for anyone who, who ends up getting one of your flags. Right. So for any veterans who are listening, you know, I'd like to encourage you guys to head over to combatflags.com. And if you have some uniforms that you're willing to donate, uh, you know, they go for a good cause. They help out an organization which really does great work in helping veterans. And the flags themselves are awesome. Like I have a flag and it's it's great stuff. It's good work. And, um, you know, working a full time job and running a business on the side is not easy. And, you know, I know from firsthand experience, so, you know, it, it's it's all good stuff. It's all high-quality stuff. And like I said, I, I just encourage you guys to check it out. Yeah, thanks, John. No problem. So, you know, I, I want to thank you for coming on. Um, you know, I had a great talk with you. Hopefully we can have you back on and we can talk uh, a little more Philippines and stuff like that. Yeah, sure thing. And, you know, it, it's interesting because the, the Philippines is – kind of important in this global war on terror and it's not like so mainstream you know like people don't really talk too much about it um yeah you you never hear about it in fact the only time that that i can recall hearing about the u.s presence in the philippines is when guys were killed which is rather unfortunate in my opinion but but it's it's to be expected with bigger things going on in iraq and afghanistan that quite frankly deserve more attention right right Cool. All right, brother. Um, I just want to thank you for coming on, taking out the time of your day. I know you're a busy guy. And, yeah, thanks, man. Uh, and, uh, I'll talk to you soon, brother. Yeah, you too. That was a very informal discussion I had with Dan. Um, you know, to hear a little bit about what what's going on in the Philippines, uh, some of the issues, and then really the, the history of the relationship that these uh, – transnational terrorist groups have with the Philippines and using it as a training ground, uh, you know, before they get sent to the Middle East or to Africa or, or wherever they're going. And and then on top of that, his company, they, it's really an amazing company, and he runs it uh, by himself for the most part, uh, you know, and he creates these awesome flags that are created out of soldiers' uniforms. So, any airmen, marines, sailors, um, soldiers, you can go to combatflags.com and there will be a section there, I believe it's at the top, where you can fill out some information and, and send in a few of your uniforms. And he'd even make two of these flags and send them back to you free of charge. So you know he's a really good guy, and I, I I recommend anyone who's interested in working with him to to reach out to him. So my website is globalrecon.net. My Facebook is FB Recon. My Instagram I have two handles. Uh, the first one is IG Recon. The second one is Global Recon underscore Inc. You can find me on LinkedIn. Just search Global Recon and subscribe, download comment, share the episode with your friends, with your family, and uh, help keep us at the top of the government and national categories on iTunes. And uh, I have some very, very, very interesting uh, interviews that we'll be releasing 
in the next couple of weeks. So you guys are going to enjoy them and we'll see you next time. Peace.